Thank you. Well, it's a great privilege to be back with you. And uh, you do look a little bit different than the last time I was here. In many cases, you were wearing masks. And so uh, if, I, if I meet you after the service and I wonder if we've met before, it's only because you perhaps had a mask on then. But it's, uh, <laughs> it really is good to be back. And uh, I would like to draw your attention to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the third chapter, a portion of it at the end, chapter 3, and then we'll read verses 22 through verses 36. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. He who comes from above is above of all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Will you pray with me before we proceed on? Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this beautiful morning, this great time of year. Thank you for seasons, uh, and thank you especially that we're moving out of the COVID uh, pandemic. Thank you for our health, and pray that you'll continue to provide and protect our health. I thank you, Father, for this church, this congregation, and their witness to you and to the gospel, and pray your greatest blessings upon it. And I pray that this morning, as we spend some time examining this portion of your word, that you would help us not only understand what it means for us to hear the words of this section of the gospel of John, but also to apply it to both our thinking, our hearts, and to our behavior. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 
I suspect that all of you here have, a, have a, on occasion, found yourself looking for a church. And now maybe, since I don't know all of you, this might be your first time, your first occasion of worshiping here at this particular church. Maybe you've been here before. But there are certain criteria that we apply when we're looking for a church. For example, we're thinking about its theology. We're thinking about what they believe and what they don't believe. We're thinking about the way in which they go about their ministry. And there are a lot of different aspects of a congregation, of a local congregation, that we're going to examine as a way of deciding whether or not that's a good fit for us. Even like the pulpit ministry, the personality of the pastor, the leadership, and the list goes on and on. But let me ask you this. When was the last time as you considered a congregation, a church, you thought to yourself, what is its, what is its behavior, what is its presentation when it comes to the attribute of humility? How often have you thought to yourself, I'm going to choose a church, not ignoring all the things we just mentioned, but one of the things that I'm, going to, I'm going to look for is this demonstration of humility. Now, to be honest with you, I don't think in the past I've thought much about that particular aspect of a church, of a congregation. But if you think about the scriptures, right, the scriptures speak a lot about humility. The scriptures speak a lot about the importance of God's people being humble before the Lord and demonstrating humility. And one of the examples that we've been given, of course, one of the major examples that we've been given in terms of humility is the humility of Christ. If you study theology, you'll note that there's, there's relatively long sections, large sections of a systematics that's going to talk about the different aspects of the humility of Christ. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 of course, does the same. He exhorts the people in the church there in Philippi to have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And so I find that in my own life, I need to be reminded and instructed in regards to this whole dynamic of humility. Uh, to be honest, and I, if, uh, if you were to ask my wife, Debbie, she would tell you, yeah, he needs to be reminded about humility. And, you know, it's just, it's just part of our nature. And so what I find interesting about and very important about this particular section of the Gospel of John is that John is focusing upon a, what I'll call a portrait of humility here in the life of John the Baptist. And if you go back through this passage, you'll see that, that there are these different aspects of John's humility. Now, uh, when you think about the life of John, it's probably fairly common for you to think about the, the, the things that you've been taught ever since you were a child, right? You think, first of all, about the diet that John the Baptist had, and uh, especially with this uh, the season every 17 years, we have these very loud uh, creatures that come out of the earth, and, and they habitate, and, uh, you know, they do their thing, and then they go back in, and they they quiet down, but, you know, like eating locusts and honey and the kind of dress that he has, those are the kinds of things we often think about John the Baptist. We might think about the fact that, and of course, uh, this passage here refers in verse 24, that John had not been put in prison. And you know that he was put in prison. He was put in prison because of what he preached. And in doing so, he eventually died there. He was beheaded. 
It was a very sad time in so many ways. But I think for John, he understood that God had done certain things in his life that in essence dictated that he would live a rather different life than the rest of his society. Now, I'm not implying or suggesting in any way, shape, or form that you should dress the way that John dressed or you should have his kind of diet, although I suspect it's probably pretty healthy. And especially with all the kinds of diets that are out there, he probably could make a lot of money selling books about John the Baptist's diet. But I don't think that that's necessarily important for us to uh, observe. And those aren't necessarily the things that really characterize this man. What really characterizes this man is that he had this incredible heart for God. And it's a beautiful picture of someone who, who really understood what it meant to stand before the living God and to say, Lord, whatever you want for my life, that's what I'm going to do. And I love being around people who have that sense. I, I love being around other kinds of, uh, everybody. I don't, want, I don't want you to get me wrong here, but, but when you're around somebody who demonstrates the kind of humility, the kind of portrait of humility that we find here in John chapter 3, it really is remarkable in terms of seeing how God's Spirit is working in a person's life. And so we could talk a lot about some of these details that, again, you probably know in terms of John the Baptist, but let's look at some of the particular aspects of what makes up this portrait of humility when it comes to this man of God. And the first thing that we're going to note is that he understood who really had title to his life and all the things in his life. In other words, he understood that he had title to nothing, that he owned nothing, that there was nothing about his life that belonged to him. Maybe for that reason, he had the freedom to live such an incredibly simple life and to go about day to day in such a manner that demonstrated the fact that he understood that everything that he had belonged to God. In verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now, there's a problem here. Uh, there's a problem that most of us, whether we think about it or not, have to struggle with. And I'll, I'm just going to speak about it from my own perspective. The reason why Chuck Garriott has trouble with this issue of title, that is, that everything I have belongs to God, is that I was brought up in a very hardworking, blue-collar family. And I understood the value of work and understood the value of applying yourself. And I remember on certain occasions my mother really getting after me about my laziness. And I grew up in really what I would consider a beautiful, wonderful home and had wonderful, loving parents. But they believed in hard work. They believed in applying yourself. And what happens is you begin to think that everything that you, that you have, even small possessions, right? And as you grow, you're, you're gaining more and more of your possessions. And if you get to my age, then, you know, you think back on the different things that you worked hard for, you saved your money for, and eventually you purchased, perhaps, right? And there, there begins in time this long list of things that have my name associated with it. There was uh, a recent occasion when 
uh, Debbie and I were going through wills and like what happens when you die and that's a very interesting process because when you when you go through that process then you're trying to discern right who's going to get your possessions and you're thinking through this and the attorney asks us this question uh, as uh, among a list of long uh, a long list of questions he said all right so you know normally that when you think about giving away or your will and and uh, your estate you think about your children right your children are going to get a portion their portion of the estate and then maybe eventually your grandchildren might get something whatever but here's the scenario and you have to answer this question what happens if all your children die what happens if all your grandchildren die what happens if all the family members die who's going to get your possessions and I thought wow that's a <laughs> that's a that's quite a question right that everybody that you know dies so where is your where is your possessions going and I didn't really have a good, I had never thought about that before, right? You just assume that, you know, somebody uh, relative to, you know, those that you know that, that, that are your children are going to get something. But the point is, is, you're thinking, what is it that I own? And you're having to make these lists of things. And so in time, we begin to develop this kind of theology. Yeah, I have possession of these things and these things belong to me because I worked hard for them and they're part of my estate. And the list goes on and on. But John says, no, it doesn't belong to me. Everything that I have is from God. And therefore, he continues to hold title to it. It's interesting to me to consider the life of David. I think David understood what it meant to struggle with this whole issue of, of having possessions and realizing that your possessions don't belong to you, that you are, in essence, a steward of these things. And so David, as, as you recall, wanted really one major thing accomplished within his life, and that was to build the temple. All of us know what it's like to have some passion for something, right? Well, I just wish I could have this, or I'm, I'm working my life to see this accomplished. And for David, it was the temple. You'll recall that, that God said through Nathan, no, you're not going to be the one who builds my temple. You're... You're a man of blood, you're, you're a warrior. It's your son Solomon who will build the temple. And out of that particular section of the Old Testament, we, we learn about the Davidic covenant. It's a very important section. But what we also learn is that as passionate as David was to want to do something, and a good something, right? It's a healthy thing to want to build God a temple. And God says, no, you're not going to be the one. But what he did do is he made sure that before he died, that his son Solomon had all of the resources that were needed to build that temple. And towards the end of his life, as all these things are collected and the people of Israel are, 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 are together, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, David says this to the people as a way of reminding them who really has title to these things. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. This is verse 10 of chapter 29. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. 
And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. You get the picture. This is a king. This is a guy who understood what it was like to have lots of possessions. And yet, at the end of the day, he stands before the people of God and says, you know what? I own nothing. I have title to nothing. Everything that we have is from God. There is a very different person who understands that the things that they have are not really the things that they have. That that which is in their presence, so to speak, even if it has their name on it, all over it, they worked hard for it. Ultimately, the Lord is the one who has title. One of the things about, um, about my work is that I have the privilege of meeting people that uh, have all kinds of different backgrounds. And uh, ministry to state is, is uh, in some ways, a, a bit of a complicated uh, work because part of what we have to do is, is go out and meet people and raise funds, etc. And there was this one individual that approached me about the possibility of raising funds. And he represented a crane company in Memphis. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with this crane company. Um, but, you know, literally it's big cranes that lift uh, heavy things. And the crane company is called Barnhart. And there are two brothers that, in a sense, under my definition here today, own uh, Barnhart Crane Company. And what happened was, their story is this, and it's a fascinating, to me, it's a fascinating story. In, the, in their early 20s, these two brothers were on their way to be missionaries in Saudi Arabia. Now think about that. What would it be like to go to Saudi Arabia as a missionary? And before they could go, their father approached them and said, sons, sons, I know you're committed to going into missions. And, uh, and I think the father honored that. But he said, I'm done with the family business and I want to turn it over to you. And so they thought about it and prayed about it. And I'm not sure why, why they actually did it. But what we're told is, is that in doing so, they sat down, especially Alan. And he goes before the Lord, uh, as he describes it. And he says, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be controlled by the fruit of this business. Now, the, the, the Barnhart Crane Company there in, in the south part of Memphis was not a big deal at the time. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I think within like, like the first year in which the sons had taken over the business, I don't know if they brought in much more than 100 or 200,000 or whatever it was. It, it was a you know, decent-sized crane company. But the son... The two sons go before the Lord and say, we want to make sure that we're not controlled by wealth. So again, the point is, it's not like this is a really big deal to begin with. But they were concerned about it. And so they decided that within the first year, they would give something, I think it was like 50% of the profits to missions, right? Okay, we can't go, we're going to give. And in that first year of their business, and this is back like in the 80s, they gave $50,000 to missions. And they felt like that was really significant. And it was. It was a large portion. It was more than, than like their salaries. But then the second year, they continued to apply the same and they gave 150000 away. 
Now, any of you here who have any kind of a business, I don't know about you, but if a business, I mean, a, a business is giving $150,000 away to missions to seeing the gospel proclaimed, that's really significant. But that was nothing. And in time, in time, these guys who made a commitment of saying, what we have does not belong to us, they ended up giving at, at a certain point in time a million dollars a month to missions, right? And I, I love what, what, he, what Alan says. Alan explains, if God chooses to prosper our business beyond what it would take to generate our middle class salaries, we promised that we would not increase our lifestyle. And later on he said, we believe God, these are his words. We, now, I, I don't, he hadn't heard the sermon yet. We believe that God owns everything, not just our income. So eventually we decided to give the whole company away as well. And through some kind of, I don't know what to call it, tax deals and et cetera, et cetera, they basically turned over the entire company so that the profits and the income would go to missions. And now think about that. And I know that within like a, uh, in the earlier days, within like a 10-year period, they had given well over $100 million away to missions. I mean, so the point is that here's two guys, their heart is for the Lord, but they realize how even a small possession in a way can captivate us and make us think, no, I'm really the guy that's in charge. So the point one of John the Baptist that we need to recall or we need to remember and understand is that he understood that what he had and this ministry that's, that's developing, right? And he's got disciples with him. And there's some degree of notoriety and people are recognizing what's happening and his disciples are like, yeah, we want to build this ministry up. And by the way, look what, look what uh, this guy Jesus is doing and what his disciples are. And John says, whoa, stop for a moment. What we have is from God. And what's happening over there, and obviously they didn't have an appreciation of what was going on, that's, that's up to the Lord. So do we have that kind of mindset that our education, uh, our possessions, our business, our work, our careers, our promotions, our positions, all of the things that we have belong to the Lord, have been given to us from the Lord. But then secondly, what I notice about John's, uh, this portrait of, of John's humility is that he understands he is not God. Now, I know that that sounds like, well, it's kind of obvious, right? But I think one of the struggles that I have with true biblical humility is that there are certain times when I get kind of caught up in the things that I'm doing. And we all get, we all get caught up in our schedules and, and, and the things that we're trying to accomplish. And all those things are good. And by the way, it's not wrong for you to have certain possessions. It's not wrong for you to sit down with your attorney and for you to have to decide, all right, these are all my, my assets and I need to eventually give them away or I need to do something with them. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's just, it's important for us to understand, but yes, ultimately all this belongs to the Lord. But secondly, it's not my decisions. I'm not God. And so what John says here is important in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
I'm not God. I'm not the one that you're pointing to. And you need to understand that. And so the first thing I, I, I see here with John in terms of his, his understanding of who he really is, is that he knew from, from birth, basically, his role. Now, his thing is a little bit unique, right? I mean, let's, let's kind of step back for a minute and understand how John's life was defined. Right, you recall in the beginning of Luke, his mom and dad and the fact that they couldn't have children and now they're, they're pretty old and there's no way, humanly speaking, that they can have children at that age and it's a done deal and they're just, they resign themselves that they're not going to have kids. And then all of a sudden this angel comes and speaks to Zechariah. He says, Zechariah, I've got some really important news for you. He didn't say it quite like that, but you know, things are going to really change for you and Elizabeth and, and you're going to have a son and you're going to call him John. And that's kind of different because normally you wouldn't call him John, but you're going to call him John. And, and then he goes on and tells the purpose of John's life. And so eventually Elizabeth gives birth to this child that they call John. And you can imagine this, this Jewish couple, how delighted they were and what it was like for them. It had to be exhausting in their age, right, to have children. I mean, as grand, grandparents, you know what it's like when you're around little kids and how exhausting it can be. And they're not giving this child back to their parents. This, they are the parents. And so there they are, you know. And, and, uh, and, they, and, and eventually, as they're continuing to pray for him and they speak to him, they're having their evening devotions. And, I, and, and Zechariah is, and Elizabeth, they're reading through the Old Testament, right? And, and they get to Isaiah chapter 40. And I can imagine, maybe for the first time, uh, when, when John was able to understand uh, what was being read, that his father turns to chapter 40 and says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And a voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And I suspect maybe, again, I don't, I don't really know this for sure, but Zachariah stops and he looks at Elizabeth. And then they look at their son. Maybe he's two years old. Maybe he's three. Maybe he's five. And they say to him, John, Isaiah is speaking about you. Now imagine having that kind of family devotions, right? <laughs> That would, really, that would really freak your kids out if like, you, know, you were able to speak that directly. But that's exactly what the deal was. John knew his life. John knew that he is not God. He is not the one who's come to save the sinners. In the early part of John, what, John, what we're told about John when he points to Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That's the purpose of John not to have the spotlight upon himself. And here is a guy that understands what it means to become less 
I, he says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now think about that dynamic of biblical humility in terms of your life as a parent, as a mom, as a dad, as someone in the business community, someone in the educational community, someone in the the medical, and the list goes on and on, someone uh, in the carpentry or or electrician or some other field. Maybe you do drywall, I don't know. But whatever it is, that in your thinking, what I have and the, the, the gifts and the abilities and the resources and the, 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 the life that God has given me, I understand that it is defined by God and it must always be defined because he's the one who has given it to me. He has title and he is the one who defines it. And John always understood that. And when he preached, he didn't preach about himself. He preached about what was to come. He preached about Christ. He preached the word of God. He went back into the Old Testament and helped people understand what Isaiah chapter 40 said. He spoke about the Trinity. He talked about what the gospel is. Here he says in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He spoke the truth. And we are not going to be quite like John, but our position and our purpose needs to be the same. And the third thing we see here in terms of what it means to have this, understand this portrait of humility, is that John understood the dynamic of celebration. And it's interesting to me that he points this out as he's talking to his disciples. In verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. A wedding is a beautiful occasion. I love weddings. Um, I have found it, Debbie and I have found it a great honor and privilege of being in the ministry that we are in and yet still participating in premarital counseling and officiating weddings. So, you know, when I was pastoring in Oklahoma City uh, back in the, from the early 80s to uh, 2003 before we moved to D.C., you know, that was the normal Pastorate and did the same thing when I was in the pastorate up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And, and I always appreciated and enjoyed and looked forward to the premarital counseling sessions and talking with couples and going through different aspects and then uh, eventually coming to the point where in, one or, in a couple of our sessions we would talk about the ceremony and the wedding and, and uh, all those kinds of details. And God has been very gracious because over the last... Uh, 18 years or so, we've done quite a bit. And even uh, a week ago, I got a request to do a wedding uh, in the fall. And I just continue to give God praise that I can participate in that part of of, uh, the body of Christ. But John, he understood. He understood what was being communicated when he brings out this picture of a wedding, right? Right? Because that is, because this marriage of 
the bridegroom and the bride, uh, Christ, the head of the church and the bride, the church, right? That's, that's just an incredible picture of, of what God wants us to think about when, when we think about our relationship with Him. That we're to think about a wedding, think about a marriage. And, you know, you have probably umpteen stories of what, what kind of weddings that you've been to. Probably one of the most memorable occasions that I have is back in the early 90s when I got involved in a, a, a ministry to Hungarians in a little place called Debrecen, Hungary. It's in the, the far northeast part of the country of Hungary. And we had uh, some friends or some uh, members of our church in Oklahoma City that were from Hungary. And when the wall came down, and we had an opportunity to start spending time in developing ministry to, uh, to Hungary. Uh, I had this one occasion to go with my friends, and so they, they took me to certain villages and uh, just incredible opportunity to get to know the culture and the people. And we had been invited to this one pastor's home in this little village. And we were having lunch, and in the middle of the lunch, the pastor looks at my friend, whose name is Bela, and he says, Bela, he said, in about 30 minutes, I'm going to be doing a wedding. And I'm sitting there thinking, really? Oh, you're going to, like, you're sitting here having this lunch and you're going to do a wedding in 30 minutes? And, and then what he said really shocked me. He says to Bela, he says, Bela, would you mind playing the organ for the wedding? And I, I didn't even know Bela played the organ. And uh, so next thing I know, you could hear this crowd of people. Now, this is like a little Hungarian village. And, and uh, we went outside and I'm still kind of in shock that like, this pastor is just, oh, we're just going to do this wedding. But I go outside, and there was this large crowd of people from the village. And in the front of the crowd, this parade, walking through the village, was the bride and the groom. And then behind them was this long parade of friends and family members, and it was just a very joyous time. And then as they came past the pastor's house, they went up this hill, up to where the, the church was. My friend Bela, he goes up and I follow all this group and, and I'm just kind of amazed at like how organic and but just this lovely thing and we go up into the church and just one of these old Hungarian churches and there's Bela up in the loft playing the organ, you know? And people were rejoicing and I'm just amazed at what happened. But it was just a beautiful picture, right, of a community coming together and celebrating this marriage. And John says... That's what I'm about, rejoicing and celebrating, right? I mean, he could just have this long face. I just ate a bunch of locusts and had a little honey, and, you know, it's not that good of a deal. No, no, this guy is celebrating life, right, because he understands that the most significant event in all of redemptive history is before his eyes and before the eyes of his disciples. And therefore, it's the time to rejoice. How well do you celebrate the gospel? Like, do you get up in the morning? I know everybody's different, right, in the mornings. I get that. But do you get up in the mornings and just, like, are excited about the fact that you did get up and that you are awake, even if it's kind of foggy, and that the sun is coming up, even if you can't always see it? And you can hear the birds, and there's just this freshness of the new day. And I love the, I, as you can see, I love the morning. I yes, yes, I am a morning person. But the point is, is that, you know, God has given us so much. 
And yes, there are a lot of issues, and there are a lot of issues that can weigh on us. And if you have health issues or you have family things that are going on that aren't so pleasant and all those things naturally will weigh on you, but are you able to, in the midst of all that, have a sense that God loves you and that he is doing an incredible work in your life through Christ, through the gospel? And are you then able to at least have some sense of rejoicing? Because I believe those who resemble the portrait of humility that we find here with John will, yes, understand all that they have title to, so to speak, but understand that they don't really have title to it. It belongs to God. That they also understand that they are not God. They're not, they're not in charge of anything, but they are stewards of what God has done and that they are called to become less and for God to become more in every area. And that's a daily process. Because daily, Chuck Garriott wants to take these things back. He's tempted to do that. And he needs to be reminded that, no, you're not God. You've been called to do something. You need to get to it. But then at the end of the day, we celebrate. Because it's not about us. It's all about the Lord and all about what he's doing. So my prayer is that as a church, that as people think about this church, this congregation, they'll think about the portrait of John as an example of humility and that they'll be attracted to this winsome uh, congregation because their love for Christ in every area of life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this morning and thank you for providing a place to worship and an opportunity for us to come before you and acknowledge that all that we have is from you. All that we have belongs to you. All that we have uh, is, in essence, to be celebrated because of the gospel. Thank you for giving us the Lord's Supper and being able to come and celebrate it. Thank you for the death and resurrection.